Uh, we're in 1 Peter chapter 4 today, going through verses 1 through 6. And this is important. The days of the chocolate syrup-coated easy believism are coming to an end. Maybe, maybe they're already gone. Uh, long gone are the days when you could put on your Sunday best and, uh, and, and, and put on that, that smile, be it fake or, or real, carry around that, that massive brick of a Bible and feel perfectly normal and safe in your world. Long gone are those days. Gone are the days when you could actually assume that uh, what you believe, even though the people on your block may not exactly believe the same things as you believe, uh, they probably at least respected what you believe. I'm told that there was even a day when pastors got to go to the local golf course for free. I, I must have missed that. Gone are the days where now, you might not necessarily expect others to respect what you believe, uh, but at least you would expect them to tolerate what you believe. After all, who's really to say what is true or untrue? You remember that postmodern thinking? That seems to have kind of vanished from our world. Where'd it go? This is the day when you wonder if if saying the wrong word, or, or giving the, the wrong look, or, or having the wrong association, or, or maybe even just clicking the like button for the wrong thing on your social media will cue you up for intense hatred, shunning, cancellation, maybe, maybe virtual and or physical beating. And if any of that should happen, you could be sure that it will be conveniently overlooked or mentioned no more than 3.7 seconds before the mainstream media will redirect the world's attention onto more important things, things like sports or the weather or uh, just a a cute little furry pet dressed up in, in an outfit. This is the world of the upside down. It's, it's, it's the world in which good is bad, bad is good. A world in which values and morals and common sense and decency have been exchanged for whatever the human heart desires or craves in the moment with no regard as to who it may hurt or how warped it may be or twisted or ultimately destructive it may prove to be. It's, it's a world that wages war now against what is logical and right and generous and caring By labeling those very same things as cruel and hateful and even violent. At case in point were the words of the Democratic senator from Massachusetts this past week. You should not be able to torture a pregnant person like that, Elizabeth Warren said. Speaking of the pregnancy resource centers that she believes should be shut down all across the country. According to Warren, they fool people who are looking for pregnancy termination help. Right, so, uh, so those places that have been set up to help mothers understand the reality of the life that has been created within them, those, those places that are designed to help them think through the next nine months or so, maybe even 18 years or so, those very same places that provide countless resources, including... Cribs and strollers and onesies and diapers and formula and bottles and 
And just about anything else you would find on a bye-bye baby shelf, (laughs) much of which has been donated by donors who just, their hearts break for those who find themselves in a tough, tough spot. Those Those are the places that are torturing people. Right. And the answer to that is, that's right. Cancel them. Burn them. Destroy them. You know, all my life I've been told that there might come a day when it isn't safe to be a Christian. That is, a Christian who actually believes and, and lives out and stands for what this book teaches. Well, my friends, I think, we're, I think we're just about there. Not that the attacks on pregnancy resource centers are the same thing as Molotov cocktails sailing through your living room window. <laughs> but it's quite possible they're the writing on the wall. And yet, while we've enjoyed a period of relative peace for a number of years, peace, tolerance, call it what you want for the beliefs we believe, perhaps the direction that we are going is nothing new. And after all, nearly 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Peter was writing things like, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Unjust suffering, it seems to be something that's just baked into the Christian faith. In fact, our faith was itself, it was born out of the unjust suffering of our Savior, was it not? (laughs) And we've taken note in our study of 1 Peter, just recently actually, that suffering, unjust suffering, it comes with a territory for those people who have realigned themselves with their Creator A creator, by the way, which the rest of the world hates. If they hate him, they're going to hate you. It's a simple algebraic equation. The question for us is, how can Christians remain strong in the midst of unjust suffering? How How do you do this? How do you remain strong? And as you might expect, Peter has some insight for us. Would you look with me at 1 Peter chapter 4? verses 1 through 6. Would you stand with me in honor of God's word as we read together? 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 says this. Peter tells us, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that Though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. You probably noticed right off the bat that Peter says, arm yourselves. That's not the translators trying to, to speak in for emphasis here. No, the word that Peter uses here, it's a military type word. This hapalizo, it means to literally Put on armor or take up a weapon. 
So once again, we're reminded that there's a battle going on here. There's a war that is being fought here. And as a soldier of the army of the king, you might find yourself suffering for king and country. Country being that new nation that you're a part of, 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. Have you ever seen a soldier or an officer, they're standing their post, maybe they're defending a building or some type of strategic position, and they're enduring all kinds of punishment from the, from the protesters or the insurgents or the attackers or what have you. Have you ever seen that? Of course you have. I've seen it. We've seen it on the news. And that's not, that's not too far off, I don't think, from the picture that, that Peter is giving us of what it looks like to be faithful to the calling that God has given Christians to stand up to stick out for their king and for the rest of their people. But how do you do that? How do you stay strong in the midst of of unjust suffering that's coming at you? There are four things that I think we can extract from these six verses here. And the first is this. Christians, they arm themselves to remain strong in the midst of unjust suffering by clinging to the purpose of Christ Just like a soldier clings to that sword, they hold tightly to their mission of of purpose, of determination to do whatever it takes to endure whatever is out there, whatever is thrown at them, so that they might see this thing that they signed up for to the end. To the end. Peter writes in verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, we just talked about that last week, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Christians stay strong even through this unjust suffering as they arm themselves with the thinking of their Savior. What was that thinking? Well, Jesus knew that even through suffering that sin was going to be dealt the fatal blow. We noted last week, do you remember this if you were here, the way of victory, it's forged through the sea of peril. <laughs> One pastor wrote, the cross precedes the crown. Jesus knew what he had to go through to win the victory, didn't he? Remember Hebrews 12 too. Who for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And in the same way, Christians are to approach their Christ-appointed calling, knowing that the path through the shadows is the way to the glorious horizon. Christians know that. And so enduring through suffering is the road to the well-done, good, and faithful servant. (laughs) Jesus taught his disciples that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily. Follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life, whoever loses his life for my sake, will save it. And we need to be careful not to overcomplicate this. It's not like there's some super secret, mysterious meaning behind Jesus' words here. Whether they knew it in the moment or they knew it after Jesus went to the cross, at some point his disciples would have realized that this simply meant being ready to suffer for allegiance to Jesus' name. That's what what they knew. But... They, they, they knew that this was not only required to follow Jesus, they knew that this was actually the path of victory. You have to walk this path. Strengthen yourself. Prepare yourself for unjust suffering by holding on to that same attitude, that same purpose 
as Christ had. And that includes this idea that suffering precedes the victory. It also includes, though, knowing full well who that enemy is that needs to be defeated. That is such an important piece here. It's recognizing that sin, it's just the worst. It's just the worst. And it needs to be put down at all costs. Sin is dead weight, isn't it? Hebrews 12.1 tells us that. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance, right? Uh, some of us in our leadership team here at Bethany, we've been talking a lot about this. Sin is that, it's that leech that drains us dry. It makes us feel worthless. Have you ever experienced that? It makes us ineffective. It makes us feel insignificant. Sin is what consumes our time, isn't it? It, it depletes us. It saps our strength. It turns allies into enemies and, and kills our ability to, to go where God is leading. Who invites a guest like that into their home? <laughs> Gives them the keys, nonetheless. Come back whenever you want. It's cool. <laughs> the answer is we do. We do. I do. All the time. What kind of weight has sin been in your life? What has it been holding you back from? What joy has it been robbing from your life? What peace has it been stripping away and you give way to anxiety? What kind of weight has sin be? How has it prevented you from living your days with joy and hope and peace and enthusiasm and resolve for the glory of God and the good of others? Lay it aside, the author of Hebrews says. Throw it away. Be done with this so that you might run with endurance, perseverance, the race that God has given to you. I don't know what your race is. I don't know what kind of twists and turns and obstacles might be on your route, but I do know that any sin that you are allowing to sit on your back, that's not doing you any favors. You and I need to have that same purpose as Christ. We need to move forward with our sights set steadily on eliminating sin in our life. Christ came to take it out. Our goal should be to do the same. Sin is a weight. It's a burden. Sin is also a death trap. Paul writes, Romans 7, 5, Well, we were living in the flesh. Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit of death. And some of us will say, you know what? It's not that bad. We're, we're actually loving ourselves by doing some of these things that God's word says you shouldn't do these things, but it's actually, it's actually a type of self-love. I need this. I need this type of break. I need, I need to, to take a, just, a, just a little rest from charging hard for, for God, when in reality, it's, it's the exact opposite. It's not self-love. It might be selfish. It might be self-centered. We might think that it's self-serving, but it's actually self-loathing. It's the worst thing that we could actually do for yourself, for ourselves, 
to step out of God's prescribed way for what humans are designed for. The designer made you and I to experience maximum joy, maximum satisfaction, maximum worth, maximum significance within the parameters of his user manual. And to violate it, to discard it, to live our lives in mockery towards it, we've got to realize that is self-destructive. It is not self-love. You and I, as long as we live with and do battle with these passions of our, our flesh, we're, we're never going to be at perfect, perfect peace. We'll always be fighting. We'll always be falling. We'll always be fumbling. We'll always be failing from one degree to another. We'll experience the agony of the sins that others commit against us. We'll also experience the horror at times when we willingly subject ourselves to sin's ravaging ways. But when we understand what Christ came to accomplish, we will look at our own suffering in a different light. Christ came that we might finally be set, set free from sin, the terror of our sin. He knew that by laying down his life, he would once and for all conquer this thing called sin. For our sake, he endured agony that we might know ecstasy. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And when we understand that, we know that whatever suffering might be before us, and whenever death finally finds us, it will mean that we finally fully realize the freedom that Christ's death and resurrection accomplished. We'll finally be free from sin. Some people take their own lives, and that is a tragedy. And they take it because they're looking for a way, many are looking for a way of escape, a relief from whatever agony they may be experiencing. Life is full of agony, isn't it? Christians must not do that. They know that Christ hasn't called them to end their lives. Christ has called them to surrender their lives as they live for him. They live out their days in obedience and worship to him as they charge forward in the mission that he has given them. But at the same time, they know that when they finally do cross that finish line, when their Savior finally does call them home, they're going to be finally free from all of this sin garbage they've been carrying around. There's a tension there, isn't it? It's a tension that the Apostle Paul felt in Philippians 1.23. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for it is far better. He's, he's basically saying, I'm struggling here. I'm struggling. I want to keep doing the mission that Christ has called me to here and now and making disciples, building up his church. But at the same time, I'm so ready to get out of here. So ready. Peter says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. One pastor wrote this. Just, just listen along. This isn't going to come up on the screens. He, he writes, the worst thing that can happen to a believer Suffering unjustly is death. That's the worst thing. And that is actually the best thing that can happen because it means the final and forever end 
of sin. He writes, if the Christian is armed with the goal of being delivered from sin, and that is accomplished through death, the fearsome threat of death is gone, and even death becomes precious. And you might say, that sounds pretty morbid. (laughs) It might. If you don't believe who Jesus is and what his death and resurrection accomplished. Paul wrote, when the perishable, that that is this, it perishes, it can die, it can be harmed. When the perishable puts on imperishable. And the mortal puts on immortality. In other words, when you, when you reach the other side here, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing That in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Strength in suffering is found in clinging to the purpose of Christ. We love what Christ's death and resurrection gives us as far as the promise of eternal life goes. Home in heaven forever, that sounds pretty good. But do we also love the reality that Christ's death and resurrection put to death sin in our lives? And we crave to see that fully realized within us. Suffering and strength and suffering is found by clinging to the purpose of Christ, is also found in clinging to God's will. Christians arm themselves to remain strong in the midst of unjust suffering by clinging to the will of God. Peter writes in verse 2 so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. If doing God's will is what brings about Christian suffering, then Christians say, bring it on. Bring it on. They know that their old sinful lives were disobedience to God. Disobedience brought what? It brought death. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. What a rotten deal that is. Believers look at sin and they say, you know what? I know what this does. I know where this brought me. I know what it cost my Savior because of his great love for me. You know what? I've had it. I'm through with this. I know where it was taking me. I know what it was doing to me, and I'm done. What they seek and desire now is to live lives that are in line with God's will. And that's because his way is just a little bit better. No, it's, it's far and away better It's brighter. His way is the way of hope and life and peace. His way is the way of eternal life rather than eternal death. And so they say no to those old passions of the flesh. Yes to being all about the will of God. Paul writes, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This thing needs to be renewed. Our world tells us, no, 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 whatever is in here and whatever is in here, that's the way it's supposed to be. 
So find out, discover who you really are inside, and just embrace that. And God's word says, no, 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 the exact opposite is true, because what is in here and what is in here has been tainted, affected by sin. It, it might feel like it is natural and leading you in a good direction. It is lying to you, and it will destroy you. So Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If you're a young person out there, you might be thinking, you know what? I'd, what is God's will for my life? I kind of like to know God's will for my life. I mean, if, if what you're saying is true, God's will is, is best, then, then I'd like to figure out what God's will for my life is. Yeah, exactly. Me too. <laughs> That's what I wanted. But, but we need to realize that the details of his will for our life, all those details we'd love answers to, they're going to be made clear as you follow his prescribed will that has been laid out clearly in his word. This is how it works. And so the task of living out God's will for your life, which was what I wanted growing up, is more about walking in line with his will that has been revealed in Scripture, rather than defining some sign from heaven on what job I'm supposed to have and who I'm supposed to marry or where I'm supposed to go to college. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That takes place as we, we learn and obey God's word. Then you will be able to know how God wants you to live and where he wants you to go. What does this have to do with suffering, though, you ask? Knowing, desiring, and having God's will as your objective, it allows you to press on no matter what kind of opposition or persecution comes your way. Yeah, you might be made fun of. Who cares? I'm all about God's will. Sure, coworkers and class, classmates, they, they might want to have nothing to do with me because, uh, because I am trying to do what God wants me to do. They, they might not like that. What's that to me? I'm all about God's will. His will be done in my life. Yeah, all kinds of horrible things might be said about you. They might come after you with sticks and stones. They might break your windows. They might write profanity on your wall. They may even burn down your place of business, but you are undeterred. In fact, your resolve is strengthened because you desire God's will and his favor and his reward. And that's far better than anything anybody else can offer you. Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. He built his house on the rock. The rain fell, floods came, the wind blew, beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. If that's what following God's will produces, if that's what obedience to Christ's words results in, I want that. How about you? I want that. I don't care about the wind. I don't care about the waves that are beating against me. I know that this 
is where it's at. This is where real safety and security and flourishing are found inside the will of God. Same mind, same purpose of Christ, clinging to the will of God. Thirdly, the third strength building tool is clinging to our new life in Christ. Remember back in chapter 2, we read the Christians, they've been called out of darkness, they've been brought into God's marvelous light. And so once you were on the outside looking in, what's going on in there? I don't understand that. It seems like everyone's having a, a great time in there, but why? I, shouldn't they be at the beach? Once you didn't know the goodness of God, a part, uh, being a part, uh, goodness of being a part of God's eternal family, but if you placed your trust in Jesus Christ, now you're beginning to get it. Now you do. Once you were running after all sorts of different things that you thought were going to bring you pleasure, bring you joy, bring you fulfillment, but all those things brought was actually unfulfillment and discouragement and guilt and death. Thank God those days are over. And that's what Peter's getting at here in verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter knew some of these people that he was writing to. Oh yes, he knew them. He knew what their old lives were before Jesus. And he lists off some of the things that they used to do. Sensuality. Sensuality means running after anything and everything that was going to give your senses a buzz. <laughs> it didn't matter what it costs, how taboo it was, or how excessive it was, or even how dangerous uh, it was. Like a thrill seeker, they would throw caution to the wind and do whatever it took to get that buzz, to have their senses stimulated and fulfilled. He lists off passions, the epithumia. This is the inner desires, then the inner cravings, the inner drive. So they used to live in these things and be all about these things. In an animalistic way, they behaved not as the image bearers they were created to be, representing God, but they... They behaved as creatures completely enslaved to their cravings. I crave this, so I must have this. Obey your thirst, right? Whatever it is within you. Passions, he writes. Drunkenness. And these days that would include other substances as well that take control of you and are mind-altering. He lists off orgies. Wild parties with other people. They're letting loose. They're losing control. They're uh, pursuing, above anything else, pleasure in the right here, the right now. He says, drinking parties, getting together with others. To do what? To drink. And not only to drink, but drink a lot and get drunk together. Ah, this is one of those things where I've seen Christians do this these days, and that is disturbing. Finally, he lists off lawless idolatry. In that day, they knew exactly what this was. This would have looked like visiting the pagan temples, getting drunk in those temples. This is how we worship. Having relations with temple prostitutes in the temples. The gods are pleased by this. We're worshiping them as we take part in this together. 
that's the way they used to live as people of darkness. And Peter says, the time for that is over. No more. Oh, yes, you're, you're still living here in town where all your friends and all your family and all your coworkers, they're still doing that. They're still going up the hill to the temple. Not you. It's long gone. The time is, it, it suffices. And what that really results, uh, amounts to is, is saying you've spent more than enough time doing these things. Are you done? Have you closed the book on your former ways of darkness or have you left them open, it open, just a crack? Just enough to dabble a little bit. Yeah, your life is different than it was before, but not completely. And we dabble and we indulge a little and we're still watching what we should not be watched or doing what should not be done or laughing at jokes that should not be considered funny I remember being in high school, waiting for a class, and a guy came up to me. He's like, you're, you're weird. I'm like, well, you know, I, kinda, yeah, I know. I get, I get that. Why? You don't swear. Like, that's a funny thing for you to say. It's like, well, okay, here's my opportunity, my big opportunity to be bold for, for God. Well, I'm a Christian, and so I don't do that. And he's like, well, I'm a Christian, too. You can't be perfect. Come on. Cut loose a little. Peter says, yeah, they might laugh at you for not going along with them. They might even slander you. They might spread rumors about you. They might try to harm you in one way or another. That's what we're talking about here. Unjust suffering. That would be suffering for what is right. Growing up, I'll never forget the impact that, that one man that I respected uh, had on me. We went down to visit him because he was a model airplane builder and, and flew these things, and I wanted to get into that. So my dad and I went to spend time with him, and he started telling us about how he was pushed out of the aerospace industry because he would have to go on these business trips with all these coworkers, and he just could not go with them to those places of entertainment that they would go to. I really admire that. I want that same kind of resolve in my life, don't you? And maybe we would say that same thing. Maybe we say, you know what, that's crossing the line. I won't go there. But how often do we have other smaller compromises in our lives? Maybe not so public. <laughs> maybe the compromises when we're behind closed doors. Are there subscriptions that I should cancel? Are there invitations that I should turn down? Are there things that are completely normal in my culture, not just normal, celebrated in my culture that are not fit for a member of the eternal kingdom? Peter made it clear to the Christians that he was writing to in that day. Their days of this stuff was done. Old ways, they bring judgment, friends. They bring judgment from a God who is poised and ready to bring that judgment. They might persecute you for going along with those things. doesn't matter. For these Christians, their desire to live as God's people should now rule the day. As Paul said in Romans 6, we need to live in the newness of life. Are you living in the newness of life? It is good. 
He writes that in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Christian, clinging to the beauty and the goodness of your new life in Jesus, that will strengthen you and that will enable you to endure whatever unjust suffering comes your way. I'll suffer, I don't mind, because I know that the, where this is coming from and the life that is, that is being perpetuated out there, I know what that life leads to, and I know that I have the newness of life in the here and now. Finally, Christians arm themselves to remain strong in the midst of unjust suffering by clinging to the promise for the future. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Back in Peter's day, some Christians were getting older, and some Christians had died of old age or illness or accident or whatever else. And there were some who began to wonder, what happened to these people? We were, we're all here. We're gathering together. We're waiting for Jesus' return. He's going to take us up, and it's going to be this great thing. But my grandmother died. She missed it. What, she, she doesn't get to come with us? Was it just a waste for them to trust in the gospel? Maybe it's a waste for me as well. And now people are starting to get uneasy around me. Now they're starting to persecute me. Now I saw so-and-so just got killed over there. What if they kill me? Are they going to rob me of the very same thing Jesus came to give me? And Peter's answer to them is an emphatic no this is the whole reason that we preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It's so that death no longer has any power over us apart from this physical life. Trusting in Jesus means that death does not have the last laugh. We already read it. Death swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? Death holds no more power for those who trust in Jesus <laughs> because they know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul writes, so we are always of good courage. We're courageous people. We know that while we were at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And so as Christians, we cling to the promise of the future. We're strengthened to endure whatever unjust suffering comes our way, be it suffering or sadness or sickness or slander. We endure all for the sake of Christ because we know that there is an amazing future ahead of us. Do you know that there's an amazing future ahead of you? if your faith is in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know what direction the world is going to take. I don't know what's going to happen this November. I don't know what's going to happen two years from now. I don't know what's going to happen here in Orange County or across the globe. But I do know 
that whatever happens, the name of the game remains the same for us, and that is persevere. With Christ as our king and heaven as our home, persevere. Persevere in the faith. Persevere in our witness. Persevere in our pursuit of holiness. Persevere in our commitment to build up and encourage one another as the people of God. And I also know that perseverance requires strength, a lot of strength. So be strengthened, church. Be strengthened. Arm yourself to remain strong, even in the face of unjust suffering, by clinging to the purposes of Christ, by clinging to the will of God, by clinging to your new life in Christ, and by clinging to the promise for the future. Let's arm ourselves that we might together be found faithful on that final day. Father, we, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. We don't have enough ink or memory bites to be able to get this stuff recorded, how good you have been to us. And even, Lord, as we are here on this, this planet, and seeing our world change before our eyes and recognizing that the heat seems to be turning up. You are good. You've given us everything we need. We thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have in you, the new life that we have in you, the, the purpose we have in you to put to death what is old. The, the details, Lord, of your prescribed will for our lives, and we can walk in them. And Lord, we have the promise of a glorious future, and we thank you for that. We cling to these things, Lord, and we pray, Lord, that your spirit would fortify our souls and enable us to persevere with strength and dignity and courage and holiness that you might be honored and good brought to your people. We love you. Thank you for this time we've had in your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.